Hey, welcome to the CTO studio. I wanted to talk to Alan about space, but I ended up talking about something way more interesting. <laughs> Healthcare, health insurance, and all that. So stay tuned. Come listen to us. Cheers. Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It, it looks something like this. Welcome to the CTO studio. I'm your host, Etienne de Bruin. The CTO studio is where we chat with CTOs building amazing products with incredible teams. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Alan Leard. Yes. Is it Leard? Leard, like beard or weird. Okay. I'll pick the latter. Okay. When I retire one day, I want to own a bar and I want to be the bartender and no, I want don't. to tend whenever I want. No, you don't want to do that. I've done it. You don't okay, so that. I want to know, <laughs> you just dropped it on me that you owned a wine bar. Yeah. Tell me about that. So <clears throat> my wife and I decided we wanted to run a business together. We were young, we didn't have kids and thought now was the time. So we had seen this concept uh, in Hawaii where there was a make-your-own-wine shop. You went in, and you could uh, taste some wine and then pick out grape juice and actually make a batch of wine. You'd end up with, like, two cases of wine that you got to custom label. And we're like, that seems pretty cool, and we haven't seen that in California. So we decided to do it, and we actually found out that there was a franchise that did it. It was called Vintner Cellar. And so they provided all the support of, like, how the heck do you find grape juice and bottling materials and supplies. And so we did that, and pretty quickly we really focused more on the wine bar side because that was fun. So we did both. We were like making wine. We had people came in and drank wine, wine bar. And um, we had live, live music on like Friday and Saturday night. Started offering food and it turned into like a whole thing. And we did that for eight years. And I say you don't want to do it eight only because. Years. Eight years. Yeah. It, um, it's a lot of fun. And Isn't if you're like in the right place. years in restaurant years? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Maybe 56. <laughs> something like that. 42. Um, so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Like day to day, it's fun, but it's a ton of work and it's a retail business where mm. you have hours that you have to be there. And as the owner, all your employees can call in sick. Oh. You can't call in sick if they all call in sick. And the mar- what, was your, what, what were your best margins on what? On the wine that we made. Yeah. I mean, when we made wine and we were selling it, it was the, the margins were good, um, especially when we sold it by the bottle. We did a lot of custom labeling. That's probably my favorite part, actually, is that we made um, a ton of custom labels. So people would come in and say like, you know, I want to make a wine label for my grandma oh. and, you know, here's a picture of her, but could you put her sitting in a, a Bel Air and like waving out the window? And so I, I had a tablet and I did Photoshop like all the time and I had and, to make all sorts of And when cool you say make images. your own, when you say make your own wine, it's not just opening up a sachet and then pouring it into a bottle of grape juice and now you have wine. Well, it, I, it kind of starts like that. You take grape juice, you put it in a five gallon pail, you add yeast. You add something called bentonite, which helps kind of clear the wine, get all the sediment out as it gets created. And, uh, and it ferments for, uh, gosh, it's been so long, something like six weeks. It's in a carboy. Um, you go through like some filtering processes and you get it to the point where it's a finished clear wine. And then you can either put it into a barrel or you can put it into a bottle. And so then they actually come in. We have this big glass carboy full of either red wine or white wine. You plug it into a bottling machine and they bring in all their friends and they have a big bottling party, which is everybody's favorite part. So like usually like, Four, six people come in and they have like a little assembly line and they fill the bottle and they cork the bottle and they put a foil on the bottle and then they put the, the labels on and we printed all the labels there on site. And an adventure. And you, you left that because there was a better opportunity. Well, you, you didn't crash. Like no, the- no. So we, um, about four years in, I realized that I was leaving after a 12-hour day and coming home and making mobile apps as a hobby. Mm. Because I, I, before this, I worked for the Department of Defense. And I was doing um, IT project management. And um, Department of Defense moves really slow when it comes to innovation. <laughs> so it wasn't super inspiring. And um, <clears throat> that was around the time that we decided that we wanted to do something together. And I was like, you know what? This IT thing, I don't know. It's really... In, in DOD, it was really, it was boring and it wasn't super exciting. So we went and we did that. But in doing that, both me and my wife realized like, oh, we have these other things that we're actually super passionate about and they're just the things we naturally want to do. 
I was like, if I'm making mobile apps as a hobby on the side, like maybe I should go back to technology. So around that time I was using, um, titanium mm-hmm. and, um, we were doing, I was doing cross platform development for a bunch of little small businesses, um, that people wanted mobile apps, but you know, was, I was doing it more like just if I could get paid something to make a mobile app, I was like, awesome. That's fun. So, um, but during that time I was using titanium and then, uh, accelerator, which made tit- titanium did their series a, and then they were hiring, they were scaling up their team. So I sent in my resume and basically said, Hey, if I can work remote, I'm totally interested. And turns out that they were open to the idea of finding the best resources, regardless where they were located. And, um, I did, uh, went through a couple interviews and I started working for accelerator. Um, I think I started in their customer support area like supporting other developers that were using the platform. Um, and then continued there for a long time while we were running the winery. So we were running the winery. I was working at Accelerator um, as a solution architect. And then I got to start um, advising uh, like Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 really was the focus. Um, companies on their mobile strategy and using the uh, Accelerator platform when they were actually deploying mobile apps on iOS and Android primarily. Although we also supported Windows and BlackBerry. Mm, BlackBerry. <laughs> BlackBerry is going places, man. Did they, they just made an acquisition, didn't they? Did they make one? Yeah, they made one. Yeah, what was it in? I, th- I actually listened to an uh, interview with the CEO. It was, it was about three or four months ago. They were super they excited a, about this. They made an acquisition in like, security, I think. Anyway. Oh. Um, where, is where is that whole titanium thing now? Yeah, so um, Accelerator got purchased by Axway, and... Um, and the Accelerator platform is still up and running. They're still doing releases on a regular basis. They've, I believe they've narrowed it down to just iOS and Android. There's always this debate internally about how long do we support BlackBerry? How long do we support Windows? Is Windows even going to make it as a mobile platform? And I think at this point they're down to um, iOS and Android. But, you know, it's uh, with the advancement of other technologies, there's less of a demand for cross-platform now. You know, with Swift, it's easier mm-hmm. to do iOS. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of other platforms. And honestly, I think right now in, in, in the mobile app space, uh, there's a big trend to just make sure you have a responsive website. Like there's, I think there's only particular use cases that are really ideal for mobile applications. And it's actually for a lot of businesses that thought they needed a mobile app. They really should just have a really great mobile website. Yeah, it's, it's and that was a big a crazy debate. Time. So um, I think we're kind of coming around to the point now where um, a lot of the, your users, it's like if it's a one-time thing, if it's transactional, you don't want to go and download an app to have to, mm. to do that. So You... So you have an interesting story because so you co-founded Limelight Health, which um, you met your CEO co-founder when he was a customer in your wine bar. Close. He was. Uh, it's the co-founder was our chief product officer originally, and he was um, actually a musician that I hired at the wine bar to play for. I think the first uh, the first event was our Wine and Roses Valentine's Day night. He came in and he plays Hammer Dulcimer. And he sat in the corner and he played music for our event. And we've served, we would, on Valentine's night, we'd do like full dinners and, and uh, give roses to the ladies. So how did you go from app developer or I suppose um, at Accelerator, mm-hmm. uh, And then you, what was that moment where you decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to co-found a company and I'm going to start CTOing this puppy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of always making sure that you have, um, doors and windows open and available to you and that you're like regularly creating them just so that you always have options. And so um, when I was at Accelerator as a solution architect, it was our job to advise on using the platform, but there really wasn't a lot of dedicated time to using the platform. And so, um, so I always made it a point to have side projects that would keep me using the platform and and give me um, an outlet to actually do coding, not just do advising Mm -hmm. on, on the platform. So um, at any given time, I think I probably had like two to three projects going. Um, one of them, I, we went pretty far with. It was Snap Coupon. It was, um, uh, there was another guy that I worked with, and um, it was a coupon app where small businesses could manage their coupons themselves, and it was kind of uh, slightly gamified on, on being able to get and use and, and then share coupons, and that never really went anywhere. Um, I also worked on another app called Progress Advisor, uh, which is still up and running, and it's used for doing observations in the classroom of teachers. Um, and so I was just the mobile developer on that. They already had a platform, but wanted mobile. And then, um, and then Garrett, my co-founder came along and said what, what everybody says, or at least was saying back then. And, uh, that was, Hey, I have an app idea. (laughs) And I said the same thing. In between, in between sets. Right. So I did the same thing I always do, which is first of like, 
have you searched the app store? <laughs> Which like 90, 90% of people that talk to me about the app that they have, it's like, look, it already exists. Let's download it and use it today. Um, but of course, for what he was looking for, there wasn't an app. And so the next thing I, I, I used to tell people um, was, okay, cool. Do you know what user stories are? And most mm. people are, no, I don't know what user stories are. Do you know what wireframes are? No. And so he's like, tell me, what are user stories? What are wireframes? So I explained it. And unlike everybody else that I think I'd ever told that to, uh, he came back, I think, like a week or two later. With it. And he had like full-on wireframes and he'd written out the user stories. And uh, oh, and by the way, this was actually for an app that was not the first app that we built for Limelight Health. This was um, for a really like a artist discovery app for local artists in Redding, California. Um, he, he was part of a thing called Yaks Live Art, which was a coffee shop that did live, live art events on Saturdays. And he wanted to be able to put all the artists in there so that as a uh, consumer, you could kind of like go in and see who are these artists and buy their music off of iTunes or look at their pictures and connect uh, with a uh, photographer, maybe for, you know, for an event. Um, and so that was the first app. We built that and uh, and he had done all the work. I mean, really, as a developer, if somebody comes and they really have great user stories and, and mm. wireframes, it mm. makes it pretty simple to put mm. it together. Um, so we did that. And that, I think, got him excited about like, oh, wow. So I can like come up with an idea put it down on paper and have it turn into an actual mobile app. And so after that, he, he actually, um, he's not a musician professionally. He didn't make a living doing that. He, uh, was an insurance broker. And so, uh, that was right around when ACA came out, um, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. Um, and so he said, you know, as an insurance broker, I want to be able to, um, quickly allow my, the individual families that I'm insuring to figure out what ACA means to them. What is it going to cost for insurance? Uh, what is my subsidy going to be? And, uh, and so we turned it into kind of like a lead gen app where you could quickly plug in your household size, uh, your income location, and we would tell you what your insurance would cost on, uh, on ACA. And, um, and so we started to kind of promote that and, and there was an in-app purchase model where, um, brokers could use it to basically have, uh, their customers quickly get a, a lead and then, uh, or get an idea of what they were going to pay for insurance and then say, Hey, great, let's go get you insurance with Blue Shield or whatever. Um, that connected us with our other two co-founders, which was mm. Jason and Michael. Um, they were actually kind of working on another project. And, um, and so they, Garrett showed the app to Michael Lujan was actually working at the, um, at Covered California, helping roll out insurance, um, on the, um, California exchange. And he's like, Hey, that's really interesting, but I work for Co Covered California, so I can't really do anything. And then a couple months later, he left Covered California and, um, was doing something with Jason and they actually needed for what they wanted to do. They needed a technology platform. So we like negotiated for a while, like, oh, license our app. But then it really, we identified like really what we need to do is we have this, there's this whole other mm, thing we mm. need to do. So we, we all joined together. And, and you're, you're four co-founders? Four of us. Yeah. So what was that, what was that first meeting like when, when you realized you're going to have this co-founder, let's do this conversation? You know, it's actually kind of fuzzy for me because um, I wasn't, I was kind of like the third party. I was like the developer guy and it was like Garrett mm. and Jason Michael because mm. I was doing that. Plus I was running a winery. Mm. Plus I was working at Accelerator. Plus I had progress advice. Like I had a bunch going on. So I was like, cool, Garrett. Like, sure, sure. You guys are going to co-found co a company. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like you let me know how that goes and I'll be here. Right. And so Garrett really, he went into it um, saying like, I'm, I'm not coming in without Alan. And I was kind of on the side like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, let's do that. And so they met. And then eventually I think we met and it was kind of at the point that we met, I think it had already been decided, like, we're just going to do this. And, and. Alan's going to help us out. And, you know, at that point, I don't know how many people co-founded companies, but there is that for me, at least there was that, well, is this, is this really going to work? Cause I was really the technologist coming in to just provide mm, the solution. Mm. You know, I wasn't a big believer at the time of yeah. like create an the amazing domain. insurance quoting yeah, platform yeah, and it's going to be right. I so, remember, uh, the way I got involved in my startup, um, my, my co-founder also came with an idea and he, was in the domain and he was excited about the domain and i i wasn't particularly excited about yeah. solving that problem but i definitely um was was very interested in the architecture of what i was sort of planning to do yeah. so it was a very much a technology challenge for me but unlike you guys uh, you know we went from two co-founders and we brought in a third co-founder yeah I, I, I'm just interest, fascinated by like four people day yeah. one were like, I think it's the perfect number. I, I, I actually, tell I think, me about that. Yeah. Cause I think, um, cause you know, three sucks. 
I think three sucks. Three sucks. There's there's always a man out. There's always a two against one, right? So it only takes Literally. two guys to agree, and the other one's like, dude, I I totally don't agree, but like, it's two against one, so we're gonna move on, right? And of course, there's the the two co-founders, which seems like inevitably there's just like there's a waiting explosion between the two of them, right? If they don't agree, like maybe it'll go great, but inevitably they're always gonna be butting heads if there's anything they disagree on. One, of course, is just like. That's just a rough road anyway. Yeah. Four, you have to agree. You have to get to the point where if two people think something then the, and the other two disagree, you got to convince at least one more person. And then it's like, and then well, three okay. against one. Is, all right. Is, so I'm the one guy that disagrees. All right. The three of you guys all agree. Let's okay. We'll go that direction. So I actually think that four is, is a really great number. I also think it's important to find the right um, co-founder mix. And that's a part, I think, of why Limelight Health is still around is that um, Garrett had great product vision. Um, I brought technology. Uh, Jason had connection with funding and, and mm. he had worked in Silicon Valley with a bunch of venture capital groups. So he kind of knew the, the ropes of how to raise money. Um, and then Michael had all the right connections in the insurance industry, which is very much um, an industry where you need to know people to really kind of get in and get going, especially as a startup. So it gave us all the right pieces for our industry, um, I think, to, to be mm. successful. But I think the four was definitely, it's interesting. I I I I actually I actually don't ever hear. I mean, that's a pretty unique story. Yeah. I, I mean, as far as the averages, um, the I, I I riffing on that a little bit. I have a three questions I ask a CTO, uh, a CEO before I decide to join or mm. work on their startup. And yeah. You touched on most of them. One, um, do they have wireframes? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and mostly because they are very articulate maybe in describing the problem but they yeah. they haven't shown an acumen for what the solution should be and they don't have to be a product person but yeah. at least show me some clickable wireframes because do they need to be i was going to ask do they need to be clickable or could it be like a notebook i like clickable only because it's damn hard to do that yeah because you know what that it's shows like that they put in some investment yeah well it also shows that You've dealt with some scenarios that you don't want to think about. For mm-hmm. instance, you know, you've got, five or, yes, <laughs> you've got five or six links on that same page. Right. It's always fun to work, talk, oh, well, when they sign up, this is going to happen. Well, then there's the back button. There's the, you know, so totally. it just shows me that they have done some, some due diligence on the Would you ever frames. help somebody get to that point? Or do you expect that? No, if, I would help them. Yeah. I, I probably, for me, wireframing is already so tactical that, and I, like I said, I don't, I don't need for them to be product people. I just need for them to have demonstrated that they, that they have thought of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I do is the, um, do they have an unfair advantage in the marketplace? Mm, yeah. So, I'll give you a classic example of where I failed miserably, mm-hmm. which is I um, I invested in a startup called you know Max HOA, which was meant to alleviate the pressures of running an HOA. Okay. Um, but you know zero impact in the markets. I mean, I had no connections with property management companies. Right. You know, I just had nothing. So yes, on yeah. paper my wireframes were awesome, but I had zero stick in that yeah. market. Did you have, in that venture, did you have a co-founder? No, I, I just did that myself. Yeah. And I mean, well, that's the other thing too, is I think that you've got to have the right balance of people to go out and do the things, no, right? Because no. if you're going to build something, somebody should be out there no. actually trying to make those connections and, and you so, can't do it all, right? And you'd kind of need to have, like, I love how one of your co-founders, you know, has had, had that unfair advantage, like connections, totally. relationships. And then the third thing is generally, are they willing to put in like 20, 30 K Right of their own because that's the kind of money that you can you can get a credit line for that. Yep, and and you're showing that you're willing to go and get it. Yep, and so for me, those are sort of the first three indicators of whether this is someone I can work yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. So limelight, we actually we had all of those things actually. Um, yeah, I didn't put in money, but some of the other co-founders did, and, and Garrett did the wireframes. We had the connections in the market, so it's interesting. It's I think it's. And did you build? Did you build the app? Yeah. The, the technology. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the first one. Yeah, I mean, so uh, we I built the first application, which was the one that Garrett and I started with. Um, we actually um, we had a buddy that uh, did that. It, sorry, did that app actually help bring in the other two? Yes, because they saw that's something. The only, I think that's yeah. the only reason. Yeah. yeah, that's what did it. it. Wasn't a bunch of hand waving. It was hey, we did. Yeah, this. it was. It wasn't even like we have a prototype. It's we're actually live and we're in the app store. Go download it. Check it out. It's fully functional. 
Um, and Garrett actually, at that point, he had already put in money to get the uh, the designer who did full uh, high resolution designs on the application. And did you have a uh, simple ownership structure when it was the two of you, like fifty fifty, or were you? Were you, you know, more we like just a hired gun? Or? Yeah, we didn't really have an ownership structure. I mean, he actually had windfall apps originally, and I think that uh, I'm trying to remember what our structure was there. But then um, when we came in as as co-founders at Limelight, then it was a little bit different because yeah. I came in as like the uh, the the third party a little bit. Okay. So, but and the uh, three of them, the three of them were friends or knew each other. No, uh, Jason. Like who, and, get, who got everybody around the table? Yeah. So Jason and Michael knew each other, and then um, and then Garrett got introduced to Michael, and then he started talking to Jason. Um, and I think it was really, it was, I think it was Jason and Garrett that were really the drivers to like, Hey, let's get together and do this. So when did you feel like you moved from third party to like, wow, this is, I'm building my company. Like I may well, spoke with your wife. You're like, maybe we should right. like, well, so, I mean, we went from, um, we went from the mobile app that we had to, okay, now we're going to build an iPad application. Um, and, and we got some money and we were, uh, it was basically me and two developers out in India. And so then it was like I was probably 50% of the development and the guys in India would picked up the other half. Um, and it was, it was basically a, full, a full-time second job, basically working during the day and then working the evening. And actually what's really interesting was we were using the Accelerator platform. So at one point when we needed more time, my job as a solution architect, you would contract with Accelerator and say, we need a solution architect, X percentage of his time. And so at one point, Limelight paid Accelerator for my time. So I actually worked my day job to work my co-founding, co-founding job. job. So, and that was, we were all built on the Accelerator platform. So, you know, it, it kind of all aligned. We were paying, uh, paying Accelerator for licensing and then they paid a solutions contract and it was all above the table. You know? When did you, so as you're growing in this role, I, I remember I had an oh shit moment where mm-hmm. I was like, I'm a great dev, I'm experienced, I love coding. I love having started a company, but, but I'm in trouble. Like, I'm not, this is hard. Well, there's CTO, like, what am I doing? Yeah, so there's that transition period, right, where you go from being the developer to, okay, now you actually need to be a little bit of a leader, you need to be a manager, you need to be strategic. And I think for me, actually, um, I'm, not, I'm not a developer developer. I like to prototype. I like to throw something together. I like to get something working quick. Um, but when it comes to, like, building a really stable maintainable code base like i know that's not my expertise yeah, yeah. like i can look at I, we can do code reviews and i can tell you that does not look good that's great like here's some things to think about but when it comes to actually being the guy who owns the code mm. that's not mm. my primary interest um i'm interested in you know application architecture but um so i was okay with that actually i was excited when the, the time came that i got to start kind of growing and working with a team and helping advise on how to develop successfully and then you know, it's, I've gone through these phases, right? Where it's like, first you're managing developers, then you're managing a guy who's managing developers. And then now I have a guy who's managing a bunch of project managers who each have their own implementations running. We've got, you know, 70 people in the engineering department. We've gone through all those phases. 17 engineering. 70. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and how, and many it's primarily, direct, how many direct reports? Um, I think I have six okay. right now. And, and that's primarily because we do enterprise implementations. So we have our, our core product. But then um, we're deploying to insurance carriers primarily um, and, and national, uh, national brokers. Um, and so we're deploying to large enterprises that are doing deep integrations with Salesforce mm. and they're integrating with legacy systems and um, we're replacing mainframes. So, so each, each of your implementations is like a full-on custom implementation. Each of your customers. Yeah, yeah. Although it turns out that a lot of the implementations, um, they're asking for features that really are accelerated roadmap features. Mm. They're things that we know we need mm. to add to the platform. We want to add to the platform. But from a capacity perspective and as a startup, as we're growing, that them wanting it is the most important thing. If they're willing to pay for it, then we can get it prioritized. Otherwise, there's a bunch mm. of other stuff we need to be focused on. So Yeah, so uh, I read this blog post on Rands and Repose about, volatiles and stables mm-hmm. and and he basically talks about and i'm i'm like you as well uh which is he classifies as a volatile mm-hmm. where you can rapidly prototype something the code will be shit but but it'll work yeah you would not have slept for three days yep. you don't need specs you're just dude i'm doing this yeah yeah it's the kind of thing where you have the conversation on friday afternoon and yep. monday morning you're demoing your prototype totally. But that's definitely not scalable. Totally. You don't want to, you, you know, and then you have the stables who come in. Yes. 
who take five, six, seven times longer to do anything, but boy, is the process and stable the code foundation. and the, the deployment, everything is stable. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, it's, and that's, I think, you know, you have to be prepared for that transition. And it's also, that's one of those big decisions you have to make, right? So for us as a company, we had our, um, our iPad application, which we took live um, in California. It was for medical quoting in California. And, uh, and really, I mean, I look back on it now and, and it, that was a prototype. It was a prototype that mm. me and two Indian developers, like we, we got it working and requirements were changing every day. I had Garrett, my, my chief product officer, literally like standing over my shoulder being like, no, 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 move that over there. Do this over here. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's move it. Let's do it. Great. Um, and so, you know, inevitably when you're building an application like that, you haven't really fully thought out the architecture of everything because half of what we ended up putting in the application didn't exist when we started building it. Mm. Um, but the great thing about that is that then when it was time, we had a whole application that's like, okay, we've gotten to the point now where we generally know all the stuff it needs to do, at least at a high level. So now when we rebuild it, we can at least start from the ground up kind of knowing where we need to be. And we actually went from, um, a mobile application and realized, oh, the insurance industry does not want to use iPads. They're not ready for that. Mm. They're still using fax machines. So, so we had to go back and we had to, uh, we built it on, um, a mean stack. Can you describe um, to the audience what a fax machine is? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen one. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, we're, right now, seriously, we're, um, we're in an industry where we're replacing fax machines and spreadsheets. I would say Excel is our, our biggest Beautiful. competitor. Excel. They have amazing Excel. The, the, the underwriters build these entire applications on top of Excel, and they're incredible. The best spreadsheets are the ones where the lights dim when you open it up. <laughs> totally. Yes, that's these spreadsheets. We have like I, I think that secretly software is just it's just on this wild journey of replacing spreadsheets. I mean, uh, yeah. any business. But how amazing is Excel? Ex- I don't think Excel gets enough credit. It's pretty amazing. It's and you know, did you know that the precursor to Excel was when they literally wrote that stuff on tables on sheets of paper, like they, the the. Th- and and I'll I'll have to I'll have to research this again. But the spreadsheets and and uh, Lotus Notes mm-hmm. or Lotus One Two Three yeah. was literally the electronically f- codifying of what they were doing manually, which was these massive spreadsheets right. of paper right. that they were drawing the blocks on the spread the, sp- the spreadsheets. <laughs> Did you know I that? Know. I'll have to look that up. I need to know the history of spreadsheets. That, I mean, that, I, you know, I thought to my, because I thought it was some genius programmer who was like, I am going to put cells right. and calculate. No, he was just like, what the hell are those guys doing? Right. I'm going to put that in this new thing. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, um, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we went, we were, are now uh, a desktop application. We are on a mean stack. We moved away from mobile and that was a big architecture decision or an infrastructure decision. And, um, so Why we did that. People, and that's about the time we actually got more, we, we took the more stabilization approach. We need to build this for the long run. Mm. I still want to know, which I feel like you're avoiding the question. <laughs> I still want to know what was the toughest transition for you? As I think it was in your journey as, yeah, I would say CTO. the toughest transition for me was making the decision to leave accelerator and come on full time as CTO. So, and, and my co-founders will tell you, I mean, they, they had to convince me okay. because I was working, I was working at Accelerator and I was really passionate about mobile. I was excited about what I was doing and, and building mobile apps. I was helping enable a bunch of developers and large corporations build mobile applications, which I loved. And I was passionate about that, the, 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 uh, the market that I was in. And um, I wasn't as passionate about it as about insurance. Okay. Okay. And so that was the big, for me, that was the big thing is like, okay, am I really ready to like say that I'm the CTO of an insurance That's software exactly company? That's exactly what I felt when I was like, yeah. do I really want to be the CTO of a CMS company? Right. Right. That is very interesting. Yeah. And so what, how did you just, how did you decide, well, okay, I'm doing this? Yeah. I think, you know, it was um, for me. Where was the wine business at this point? It was still there. It was no. still running. But we, uh, let's see. We knew that we were going to be, we had decided that we were going to be closing it. So my wife and I um, had our first son about three years previous to this point, I think. Um, And so, and we had been, we've been trying, we got to a point where we were trying to run it while she was actually producing in theater. She had gone back to kind of her passion and I was now in technology. And And where is this? Sorry. This is all in Redding, California. Okay. okay. And so, and we had, um, so we decided we decided we're going to hire a manager. We're going to have a manager run our business. It's going to be amazing. Oh, we're going to have some person we're going to hire and they're going to do a great job. 
and uh, that was difficult. And we spent three, three years, three years trying to figure that out, going through different managers. And, um, and inevitably, one of the big things we found is that being bartenders at our wine bar, what people loved was they liked coming in yeah, and seeing a friendly and face seeing, and yeah. especially knowing the owners like, oh, oh Alan and Jana, yeah. let's go hang out with them and drink some wine. And, uh, and so when we weren't there, there was a drop off yeah. in business where it's like, oh. well, if Alan and Jan aren't there, then uh, who's this new that guy? That is true. That is true. So there was a big part of that. Um, and so, yeah, so we knew at the time that I was making this decision, we knew it was actually one of the deciding factors for me was this was my opportunity to go from having me- several multiple apps that I was managing, working at Accelerator first full time and running a winery to like, what if I just focused on one thing? <sighs> right. Yeah, and that was for me. That was like that was a big part especially of especially for someone who likes to keep their options open. That must have been yeah, damn absolutely, hard. No, absolutely. So it was really it was like that was the realization of hey, I, I did all these things, I had all these little side things, and this one's actually becoming something. At this point, I think we had um, we had gotten our our angel uh, investment, our seed round, and uh, I think we were at the, the point I was making the decision. It was kind of like we were closing our Series A. It was like okay, we're closing Series A. We can actually give you a salary. We need you to come on. Like we got to get going. We need a seat, full-time CTO on the, yeah. on, in the deck. Yeah. Presentation so deck. You touched on it earlier, actually, about um, recognizing that your interest can actually be in the, um, the challenge of building the product, regardless of maybe what industry it's in. There's like that technical challenge. Um, and that was, a, that was part of it for me. And also just the fact that um, in my career, it was, it was the right next step. Like mm-hmm. I, was, I was leading a group of solution architects at this point. Um, and it was like, this is my chance. Like I can become a CTO now. And I, I think that's what I want to do coming out of college. I actually looked back and one of my goals I had forgotten, but one of my goals was to be a CTO. And I, I looked back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's right. Coming out of college. This is what I wanted to do. This is my chance. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, I made the, the dive and, and my, my co-founders, I think to their dismay had to like really convince me like, they're like, come on, man. Like, what are you talking about? Like we got, we got funding. We're ready to go. What do you mean? You're not sure if you want to do it. <laughs> So, so they had to give it to, there was a point in time where, um, Jason actually, he drove, he's like, I'm driving to Reading. I'm coming up. And he took me out. He's like, what's going on, man? Let's do this. And Garrett came and came with us. We did the same with our COO, our third partner. We took him out to sushi and got him horribly drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's a fascinating journey. And that's why I ask you about it because I think so many, so many people, uh, are, it's just that limiting feeling of I, I going all in on an idea or like this can actually work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, that is an arduous process Yeah, with, with yourself. Well, and there's also, I mean, yeah, I mean, especially for if you're the technologist, if you're going to be a technical co-founder, if it's not something that you passionately believe in, it's hard to necessarily feel like, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to work, right? Like mm. you're in an industry that you don't know. You're talking about a product that you didn't even know was even needed until you got introduced to this, right? Like, you're like, I didn't know that they were using an application to quote employer health insurance. I just thought like, I don't know, I just thought the employer just got it, <laughs> right? Like, it was like a whole world I'd never even thought about. And so to be passionate about like, oh, this is definitely going to work, like, maybe, you know, maybe hard. that made you a perfect, a perfect candidate because you didn't quite know what you were getting yourself into. Uh, uh, well, I didn't know. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to quote insurance accurately and then apply contributions and tell like us. the level of accuracy that's required? Tell, tell us. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's the technical challenge. That's the thing is that that's actually what I've, I've come to find. One of the things I love the most about what I do is that we have really hard problems and I can attract engineers on that premise. Mm. Um, hey, do you want to solve like a really hard problem or like, do you want to do so? I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to mention other areas that may not be as, as technically difficult. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, applications that are required that, you know, I think overall they're kind of basic. They've been done before and you need to do it. You need to do it well. But this one's technically challenging. It's really difficult to, to really do all the things that we need to do. We're, we're um, one, we have to calculate insurance rates accurately. And there's a whole bunch of problems that come into that as far as where the data comes from. And then we have to be accurate to the tenth of a penny. Right. Because you can't be, just be accurate to the penny because we do employer employer uh, group insurance. So if you're off by a penny or two pennies, you then multiply that by all the people that have multiplied it into. and then you apply your contributions and like you can be off by a, enough that it makes a big difference. Yeah. And because um, it affects people's paychecks, right? it affects people's paychecks. Just briefly, uh, Limelight does what? So Limelight Health is a is a quoting underwriting proposal platform. Essentially, think about um, everything that needs to happen from the point that a uh, employer says we're going to get insurance for our employees 
to the point that the employees are ready to start selecting what insurance their employer has selected for them. Mm. So there's a selection process. The, sub, that, the, the subgroup of yeah. So we, we went through this. Yeah, yep. So. Yeah. I mean, any, any small employer has gone through it. Once you decided to do insurance, you're, you have an insurance broker of some sort that will come and say, "Well, here are your options. If you're in this city in this location, you have these carriers. And there's, do you want to, you know, you really want to take care of your people. You want to get gold plans that have really low deductibles and really great coverage, or you just want to like, get something, right? So the employer makes a decision. Um, and then at that point, uh, that's when you would finish in our platform is the, that you've made that decision. And now we would push out to an enrollment platform, but we work with the, the carriers. And so the, the process is really ba- being able to um, uh, provide accurate availability on what plans are available to that group and then quote them accurately, apply contribution modeling as far as how much is the employer going to pay, how much is the employee going to pay. There's a bunch of models around how that works. Um, and then the carriers want to be able to do underwriting. So carriers will look at the group and say, yeah, um, you know, age distribution. Yeah. I mean, with ACA, they can't do that. Medical quoting is just straight out the door. But with uh, ancillary, they'll look and, and look at risk for disability and apply discounts. Uh, and all of that then gets wrapped up into ideally. And one of the things that we do well is a nice looking proposal that helps the employer make a decision. Mm. How much am I going to spend? Mm. And what is everybody getting? And, you know, does, uh, you know, Jim, his daughter has this disease. She has to take a, a medication. Is that still going to be covered? All those types of things were. Um, you know, I think a lot of employees don't know that employers and, and health insurance brokers are making a bunch of decisions for them mm. before they even get mm. offered like the five plans that are put yes, in front of them. Yes, But that's... We, we, uh, we literally went through that. Yeah. We met with multiple brokers, mm-hmm. selected the subgroup of plans, and then you have the, you can't, you can't offer, you've got to offer the, sa- the same group of plans to everybody and and you have to be in all these tedious meetings. Of, yeah. Uh, now I've got to go talk yeah, to see, this person, that person. Your iPad's lighting up, and it reminds me that's that was actually the goal originally. Is like let's give an iPad to the broker so that you don't have to have all these tedious meetings. Bring in your iPad, sit down with the employer, have everything at your fingertips, and make a decision in one meeting. And our platform is doing that. We're doing it on desktops. All of the uh, the brokers carry on their laptops, but they're doing that now instead of like, hey, let me print out a proposal. We'll look at it. We'll make some changes. Then you say you need something. I'm going to leave. I'll come back next week. It's exactly and, what happened. Right. So instead, they should be able to bring their laptop, sit down with you. Hey, let's just, let's go look. Hey, you've got 160 plans available to your group. So which carriers do you want? Like why? Let me tell you about why Kaiser might be better than Blue Shield or whatever. Right. And so your customers are the providers, right? Primarily, we're focused on the providers. We've sold to everything from like an individual broker who says, I want to just license the product to we really focus primarily on the broker side on the national brokers. Um and those would be, you know, the big, the big brokers like uh, Paychex, ADP, um, Zenefits would be an example. There, you know, they were they became a broker. Um, so the the big national brokers, we can install our platform. They can use it nationwide. And obviously, for us as a software company, there's a much bigger return on investment on our side there. But the insurance carriers, they have a problem that we didn't really even know until we got into this, and we discovered that they're a mess internally. They're using spreadsheets to manage billions of dollars of business. And so what we found is that there was a need for our platform. Most of them have built something that resembles some pieces of our platform and they built it in-house over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and it's really inefficient. It's really hard to manage. Uh, it's not scalable. It's, a lot of them have really terrible performance. And so we're focused on that side. We can sell to the carriers. The carriers can then provide our product out to the market, but they get a bunch of value internally for their whole end-to-end workflow from their sales executives, their underwriters, um, we just rolled out our actuarial management tool for actuaries to actually build their formulas in a graphical user interface. Um, and, and it's fun to see actuaries get excited about <laughs> software. They get excited. Yeah. So they also smart though, really smart. They do amazing things. I mean, like the way that they look at risk and they evaluate it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Do, uh, do, do you, so are you subject to HIPAA compliance? Kind of, not really. And that's an interesting question because for us, because we're quoting, we don't actually take in any data that's covered under HIPAA, but we're dealing with providers who inevitably they're dealing with HIPAA. So we've kind of had this right now, we're at the point where we're ready to go full HIPAA compliant. We've, we've built our software so that it's ready to be HIPAA compliant, but on AWS to be on a HIPAA compliant stack, it, I don't think it quite doubles our AWS bills, but it, oh. it increases our costs significantly. So we're kind of like, we're kind of holding off until we really have to go fully HIPAA compliant. We're extremely secure, just as you would be with like credit card data, financial information. Uh, HIPAA compliance has an additional layer of requirements that just make it more expensive for us. How much of your time is devoted to educating these providers about 
on-prem versus cloud? Well, we don't do on-prem. So you don't... We won't do no, on-prem. So you won't do on-prem. We but do. We do. Isn't, that, isn't that the world they come from? Yes, so absolutely. I, but they all get it now. I've, they, we've seen it. in the last five years, it used to be when we came into a carrier and said, oh yeah, we're deployed on AWS. They're like, oh, yeah. we got to put you through a whole bunch of extra security uh, review stuff. Now it's, oh, yeah, we're at AWS. They're like, oh great, we can just check off all those pages. You're good. Okay. <laughs> so it, the, the shift has happened. Yeah. Like now they get it, they're ready. And so we even, we've stopped being asked about on-prem. We used to say like, oh yeah, we'll entertain it, but it'll be really expensive because we don't really want to do it. Now the primary thing is we do single tenant deployments um, or, a, or you can be on our multi-tenant deployment and most of them choose single tenant. And how do, 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 you, do you mitigate risk by, so is, are you just deployed to AWS yep. in multiple data centers then? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that how yep. you mitigate mm-hmm. sort of the risk? Yeah, so we have um, our primary deployment um, and then we have a secondary that's our backup, which is um, it's like in our documents, I think it's like 700 miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way we have disaster recovery mm-hmm. and we meet all of our it's what I, it's what requirements. I respect and admire founders so much because was it probably Garrett who said, I want to build a system where... <laughs> We're going to build an app. Yeah, I'm going to build a system where we're going to show employer and we're going to marry all this data. And it's like, I mean, I can imagine you being like, dude, right? I am not doing that. That sounds like a shit job. If I knew what the application was going to be today, five years ago, I don't think I would have signed up for this job. But you also, you know, it happens over time. And I guess the cool thing about a startup, right, is that ideally you're taking like the most important high value feature and building that first, right? And building that one thing to go prove your idea. You're not trying to build, like you don't start one to wake up one morning and be like, I'm going to build an enterprise SaaS platform to replace this, the underwriting and quoting process in the insurance industry. You start with one piece and then it grows from there. And we had a strategic shift where we went from really focusing on being this multi-carrier um, medical quoting platform for brokers to say, wait a minute, actually there's a big need on the carrier space and, and yeah, the underwriting space. Because, it was actually driven by one of our, our first customers. Yeah, They're like, hey, we were going to do that whole broker-facing platform piece, but actually we have a bigger need internally with the way we do underwriting. So can you help us there? And we're like, we, I remember the decision. We're like, oh gosh, this is like a big strategic shift that we may never come back from. And it turned out that it was actually the right shift. I mean, that's, you know, when we're installing our platform now, we're installing it in and replacing software that's been there for 20 years. So the expectation is they're installing our platform. Most of them are planning for 10 to 20 years. So that's great when you've got a SaaS platform for your, your ARR, it's, it's terrific. So um, once we're installed, I mean, they're spending, you know, uh, six months to two years doing an implementation. Mm. So once that's there, mm. like it's really sticky. It's a, it's a really good place to be. Brokers can be like, oh yeah, I'm going to switch to the other quoting platform mm. this month. Boom. Right? Wow. Ah, $99 that I was spending, I'm going to just, <laughs> right? So it's, it's so a very cool. different model. And when it, you made that shift, uh, when you made that shift, uh, did the were the four co-founders like, "This is it. This is this makes a lot of sense. Let's do this." I, I don't think we we weren't as strategic as like, "Oh, we see the we see the vision of where the market's going." Like, there's money over there. Yeah. Let's go get it. Was it was like, "Okay, well, so there's a really big check over here, and there might be some other checks over there, but they're not there." And this seems like it probably seems like it probably could be a big thing, right? But. It wasn't, it wasn't strategic and we continued to do, um, and still today we do, we do the medical quoting side. So, um, you know, I mean, we continued to do that and that's been one of our struggles is like doing too much, trying to do everything. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big struggle as well is how do you focus? I just know? made a, my wife and I just made a, uh, a, a really important, well, a really, I think a super risky decision. Yeah. We decided to exit the healthcare system. Like for your family, yeah, and what we've we've decided to try out the shared shared. Oh, system. Um, uh, what do they call it? What's the what's the term for that? like a bunch of doctors? Yeah, they're yeah. all like kind of working together. Yeah. You pay them directly, yeah. and yeah. then you get like unlimited. No, 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 no. This is a different one. Uh, this one, it's called, it's a it's a it's a Christian ministry called uh, Samaritans Ministry okay. something. So how does it work? How do you get care? You basically write checks to other people. So I've heard of this. So you basically you have a don't you don't you don't write it into one account? No, so you literally write checks to people who need the money. So is it going to be like so okay so there's a family that needs $10,000 and like whatever, so, 100 families are yes, going to each write them yes, a check. Yes. And so and the system wow. the system the, the the oversight 
is making sure that everyone pays their little share and the distribution of the shares and yeah, yeah. the more people that's in it and they start doing uh, so our maximum supposed share amount is going to be around 500 bucks a month okay for a family of 5 okay the the limits so here's where the massive risk lies is so one you can't share a need that is less than 300 bucks so, you're, it. so you're, anything under 300 you're, you're always you're always paying it's Got not a deductible it. you're always paying for yeah, it yeah yeah Anything that's over that, you basically submit a claim. So you, okay. you take care of it with cash. Yeah. Um, and then there's about a two to three month process of where you'll get reimbursed with a bunch of checks in the mail for this expense. See, so our my heart's racing as I'm saying that because this is this is this I'm I'm, no, I'm afraid. Well, but I'll t- I, but excited. So, I think it's important though. I mean, like. You guys are taking a risk because our system is kind of broken. And so something's going to have to change. And that's why they're like, that's, it's essentially a startup. Somebody said like, Hey, I have this idea. What if everybody just paid for everyone else's needs? Right. And, and that's, you know, you've got Amazon getting into the mix. Like everybody's looking at, at the, the system right now saying something's broken. We need to fix it. It's, it's so, um, and then the thing really is, interesting. and the thing is, um, I was on blue shield, so I've been, you know, since my exit, I've basically been on my own. Yeah. So the amount of money we've spent on healthcare insurance, yeah, has been should be illegal. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's I not to mention people, all the, the checks number they're paying. Yeah. Their not to mention all the checks I have to write after yeah. we've been to the doctor. So I'm going to pay you a thousand dollars a month for my family, and then whenever I go get care, I'll just pay for it myself, which is what ends up happening because it's under my deductible, which is five thousand dollars. Exactly. So ours was, uh, you know, in full disclosure, ours was two grand a month, right? And Blue Shield treated us like shit. Yeah. And um, and 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 because it was a, a PPO, we were getting these invoices from all, right. like, you know, you go, oh, you man. go. When my son was born, I remember we got, here's a bill from the anesthesiologist. Here's a bill from the nurse. Here's a bill from the hospital for the room. Here's a bill from the janitor. Yeah. And like, can I get it itemized? Oh yeah. There was 48 gloves that were used and we charged you $4 per latex glove. Really? Exactly. Can I bring my own box now, next time? <laughs> now yes. So, so yet yet a couple things. So the claims, um, if the claims, so I added a little extra to it, which they called share and save or something. So for claims that go over $200,000, mm-hmm. you basically have to pay a little bit extra. And I'm talking like dollars, not yeah, yeah, yeah. where you can then participate in the big checks. Yep. So if there is a catastrophe, yeah. you basically start getting big checks in the mail. Where do the big checks come from? Again, from the collective. Does this hundreds of thousands any, of people? Do you know? Do they have like reinsurance at all? Do they have any backup protection? I don't over know. a certain amount. I I don't know. Uh, all I know is I have several do- friends who participate in this, and they and it's like if it wasn't for their endorsement, yeah, you you wouldn't do it. No, I I mean I, you know, I consider myself an innovator and a disruptor, but I'm yeah. shit scared when it comes to taking these kinds of risks. Yeah. But I seriously, I cannot stand. Uh, there has to be something better than what's going on yeah, right now, for sure. And while the five of us are, you know, still, you know, we're just kind of trekking through. Yeah. Nothing's happened. I realize that I'm spending a fortune and being treated like a second-class citizen mm-hmm. because I'm afraid that something's going to happen. Yeah, fear. Um, it's interesting. It's really, it's a, really are, you ju- are you judging me or are we good? No, no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm kind of fascinated by the topic. I mean, like I wasn't like an insurance guy getting into this industry and now I see, I get to see all the inner workings of what's going on. Like reinsurance, for example, I was just out in, uh, in St. Louis meeting with RGA, one of the biggest reinsurers in, uh, in the country. So what is reinsuring? So when an insurance company takes on your risk, they will sell a portion of that risk to- so that they can distribute their risk to a reinsurer, which will buy portions of risk. And so they're not buying the risk of any one individual. Mm. They'll buy basically mm. packaged up mm. risk. I'm pretty sure they must have things like that. So, and they do, they're actually, so something they're doing, which is really interesting. RGA right now is, is, is um, building out a, a risk score so that they can basically provide a risk score on a group. And that's what I was actually going to ask you about is, is um, does this organization check how healthy your family is? Do they do any risk analysis? They don't. They, um, they, they do not. Yeah. 
They will, however, I did. I got some package, some stuff in the mail last night. They will, when you do submit a need, mm-hmm. they need to approve it. And I think that there are some pre-existing condition criteria. Like if you come, oh yeah, if you come into the system with a pre-existing condition, you can't do any claims for that need for 12 months. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but sense. I don't know what this does for people who have severe issues, right. and and um, that it is a Christian-based thing. So mm-hmm. I had to, uh, you know, so <laughs> some of the criteria is, is pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. Like you promise that you are not going to take to the bottle. You promise that you, you know. So it's a. But there's no there's no blood or there's no fluids no, required. No, okay. uh, there's no fluids required. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, here's the thing, though. There's going to be a bunch of these. They're, all gonna, to be. they're, they're already out there, and I think they're going to start becoming more uh, more relevant. I think Aflac has a system uh, that's completely yeah, well, they'll shared. Pay, they'll just basically like pay you yeah, like, cash, yeah. basically. But this yeah, has to happen. I mean, this is as, – as long as you have a system where one party is claiming from another party mm-hmm. on behalf of services rendered to, a, to you, Yeah. I mean – you know, my car was in, you know, I, I have a Tesla and uh, I accidentally dinged it. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote to fix it was close to $20,000. Mm-hmm. And all it needed was a new hatch. Mm-hmm. And they had to, the bumper was a little, uh, not a new hatch. I mean, it's literally, there were two little dings in it. Yeah. But it was over two parts. So, you know, they had to replace the, the back bumper and the, the hatch. Yeah. And... That whole thing was twenty grand, and yeah. I know what happened. It's just like the body shop was like, "Hey, this is easy money. Yeah, it's going to claim it from this dude's insurance." Yeah, it's I don't know. It's so much. Yeah, another insurance thing that's going on right now in in my life is my my mother. Actually, she just was told by her insurance company that they won't cover her house. She lives up in Reading, where the car fire was, and uh, and so all of a sudden now the insurance company is like, "Oh no, it's too much risk. We're not going to cover you." But then there's another company that does like it's a California Fair plan. And so they'll come in and they'll cover you, but it's like, what, I don't know, like five times what she was paying before. And so she had to go through this whole search to find all of these different companies because the company that was covering her and that she'd been paying for years to cover her house, now it's too risky. And like, does she get a refund? Yeah, so. Does she get any money back for the time that she paid? No. There's like, oh no, it's, it's too risky. We're out. Um, so, it's, so, so where is this? So where is this going? The insurance thing? In in health insurance, like, what do you feel? Know. You know, what, what? I think I, I I really have no idea, and I don't want to speculate in a way that I where I'm not yeah. educated. Really, I mean, I only see kind of what's going on around me. Um, but it's uh, I think there's got to be something where it's more direct care. I think that like kind of what you're doing, where it's like it's more focused on let's just try to get as much of the money to the people that are actually providing the services. Make sure that those services are reasonably priced. What that looks like, I really don't know. It's it's there's a bunch of moving parts, right? You've got the politics involved. Yeah. You've got the big insurance carriers. Um, you know, a lot of those insurance, some of those insurance carriers are nonprofit and, and private, or and uh, and private. Some of them are publicly traded companies with investors behind mm. them. I mean, and they're insurance sick. companies. It's it's just yeah, it's y- such an interesting system that we have. Yeah, and that's the one thing uh, the the Samaritan CEO apparently has a respectable, mm-hmm. modest salary. Right. <laughs> Like what? What one one point five million a year? <laughs> apparently, it's completely. Does sort he get of, bonuses? <laughs> apparently, I, I mean, I did a lot of research, no, sure. and apparently, that's the thing. Here's the other thing: is when you claim uh, and you mention to the hospital, "Hey," because they ask you what your insurance. You say, "No, I'm a cash patient." Yep, discount. Uh, that you get a massive discount because right. for them, it's like, oh, thank goodness, we can right. just you know zap this guy's credit card, you know, right. and it's just done. Right. Whereas if, you know, otherwise it's like this whole back and forth negotiation. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the problems is that negotiation that happened when the provider would say, hey, so our, uh, we did an MRI on a patient and it's $1,000. We need you to pay us. And they're like, we'll pay you 800 and they're like, no, 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 it's $1,000. Like, you don't go to In-N-Out and be like, I want a burger. And they're like, it's $5. You're like, I'll pay I'll you pay three. You. <laughs> right? But that's what happened, right? Because then, then they would say... Oh well, you, we'll pay you eight hundred, or we'll just send all of our patients somewhere else. Yes, and you're like, as the hospital, and when you've got like Blue Shield saying that, you're like, uh, okay, it's eight hundred. But then, what do you do next year when you readjust your negotiated yeah, billing? You're, you're MRIs out. are yeah. now sixteen hundred dollars. It's unreal. And like, it's, we'll pay you fourteen hundred. Exactly. <laughs> all right. 
<laughs> you just told me where it's all going. I love it. It's going well, up. Yeah, well, yeah. I, but I, it, families can't continue to pay what they're paying. It's ridiculous. No, no, it, and the employers are paying it too. And that's what we see, right? Is that when we're doing these quotes, we have these huge numbers that are being quoted to employers. Like it's a massive a dollar amount that employers are paying. If you have a hundred employees, you're paying a lot of money. And so if you're lucky as an employee, your employer is paying it. But regardless, somebody is paying. It's coming out of either their Either the revenue coming into the company or it's coming out of the, well, and indirectly then it's coming out of the paycheck for the employee, but it's coming from somewhere that's like money that could be going into our local economies and could be helping the families pay for their own, for their own services. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, the, we, the, we, the politics is what's going to really, I think there's, there's going to be a change, right? I don't know uh, when, where, uh, like we just had the change. I think in 2019 now the we're no longer, I think I could be wrong on this, but I think you no longer have to pay the mandate if you don't have insurance. And that's going to shift the system as well. Because part of ACA said that if you yeah, don't yeah, have insurance, yeah, yeah. you have to pay. Or if it. you're not paying enough in insurance. Right. Um, like... The, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, what I wanted to ask you just briefly, because I think we're running out of time. What I wanted to ask you about if there'll be health insurance on Mars. Hmm. But transition, let me transition ask you before that, um, the what are you loving the most right now about being CTO of mm. of your of your company? Yeah, I think it's a, a word of fun time. We um, we just closed our Series C. Um, we've got a, a great team that's going to be growing. Um, we've got a really big pipeline of customers. So we're at that point where, like, as a company, we've we've stabilized. Like, we're at the point now where it's like, okay, now we we just have to focus on delivering, and and we're going to be good. Um, and so for me, I'm at the point as we scale, like we actually just hired a VP of enterprise delivery who's going to be starting in January. And, and the goal is that he's going to pick up all of the, the day to day of all the enterprise implementations, mm. which has been on my sounds plate. Sounds like Christmas. Yeah, exactly. And so, and he's super experienced and he's like, he's, he's going to be able to deal with his eyes closed. He's done other stuff like this before. And so like at our level right now, it should be a, does a that involve, so does that insert him into the org chart where Dave's report, your, your, your directors report into him or it's a good question. So we're actually right now we're talking about like, do we want to, what, what type of org structure we're going to have with yeah. him in place as far as cross-functional management. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, just talking about it today, you know, like actually I don't know what your perspective is on this, but you've got developers, you've got QA, you've got product managers, and then they're all on an implementation and there's say five implementations. This guy's running all the implementations. Mm. So do all those people kind of indirectly report up to him or do we have like right now I have a director of product. I have mm. a software engineering manager. Mm. I have a director of quality assurance. So I think we're going to have kind of a cross-functional approach where uh, my director QA, he's responsible for all the QA team members, really like knowing the automation framework and being successful in their day-to-day. Um, but then the, they're going to be in a team that's responsible for delivering on a particular implementation successfully and kind of report up that way. Mm. Um, so as long as you, as long as, as long as your people don't feel like they have multiple bosses. Right, right. Uh, and that's part of what we're looking at is like, what's the right structure? Because mm. right now we're one, we're one organization. So you've got CTO and then you've got a director of product, a, a, a software engineering manager, director of QA and director of data, and then everything funnels down from there. We're going to take those organizations and basically split them in half. And we're going to have one side that's going to be product development. We focus purely on, ideally, uninterrupted product development, not having to report directly to one customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side, the implementations mm-hmm. that are taking all of the information, all the requirements from the mm-hmm. uh, the customers and doing the implementations. But the both, both those will be under the CTO, right? I think for now. Yeah. I think the intention yeah. is actually to carve off the delivery organization completely mm-hmm. and have a CTO basically focused on um, product innovation, product yeah, development, yeah. and then another organization focused on implementation and just general customer success. Mm. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds interesting. I have definitely a couple people that you can talk to about that organizational yeah. design stuff. Yeah, and I connected with uh, with Jessica for product. And we're gonna, well, we're going to be uh, I think meeting up in January. So I'm interested to see. Uh, get some perspective from her. Maybe yeah, even. she just worked with Jerome, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I talked with Jerome and. You made recommendations. So I did want to talk to you about the space, but we're done. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> come on, man. This is like, I feel like we just did like a... like Space the, is so much more interesting. I feel like we just, we just did the part about. of the conversation where we, I haven't come into your house yet. We're just That's still right. bantering outside That's the right. front door. All right. Well, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 45 By the minutes way, do you later. want to come in? <laughs> Alan, thanks, man. This is this is very exciting, and there's definitely a part two ahead of us. I think. Awesome. That sounds great. Cheers.
Yeah. Have you chatted with the CTO lately? Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO Studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com for more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs. We also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.